at One Day University. We feature hundreds of top-rated professors from Stanford, Harvard, Michigan, Texas, UCLA, and other schools across the world to explore history, music, politics, art, science, and much more. Every Wednesday, our weekly Scholar Newsletter includes five fascinating short video clips of our most notable professors discussing a brand new topic, plus special reports and topical debates as well. Sign up for free at OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y-U.com. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to Connect the Conspiracy with your host, Larry Elise. Join him as he dives into some of the biggest conspiracies in history and attempts to separate fact from fiction. Conspiracy is part of our culture. Sometimes it's mere imagination. Sometimes a conspiracy is so deep that it makes it even hard to track down. The fact is, we as humans try to connect the dots and make sense of everything. I'm your host, Larry Lease, and I'm here to help you find details about conspiracy theories while having a good time. To connect and discuss in-depth topics, follow the podcast on social media at CTC Podcast One. Send me your comments today. Let's dive right into the Culper Spy Ring. Prior to British General William Howe's move from Staten Island, George Washington had received information of varying utility from individual spies working independently and without significant direction, such as Lawrence Maskell. After evacuating the Continental Army from Brooklyn Heights, Washington asked William Heath and George Clinton to set up a channel of information on Long Island. But he did not yet try to establish permanent agents behind enemy lines. Instead, he sought volunteers for espionage missions. Among them was Captain Nathan Hale, who went to New York City under a false identity, but was quickly captured by the British and executed on September 22, 1776. This made Washington realize that a more discreet and well-organized espionage system would be necessary in order to infiltrate British operations. He decided that civilians would attract less attention than soldiers, and he asked William Dewar to recommend a suitable agent. Dewar recommended Nathaniel Sackett. His army contact was Hale's former classmate, then Captain Benjamin Talmadge. Sackett had some success, for example, the discovery that the British were building flat-bottom boats for a campaign against Philadelphia. However, Washington felt he did not produce enough correct intelligence fast enough, and Sackett was soon paid off. Early in 1777, American Colonel Elias Dayton set up a spy network on Staten Island, which worked with an established network known as the Merceroux Ring. The British victory at the Battle of Brandywine on September 11, 1777, led to the capture of Philadelphia on September 26, which became a new focus of intelligence gathering. Washington assigned this task to Major John Clark, recently returned to service after being wounded before Brandywine. Clark set up a successful network, but poor health forced him to take up a text job. 
In August 1778, Washington accepted an offer from Lieutenant Caleb Brewster, based at Norwalk, Connecticut, to provide intelligence. His first report included details on the condition of British warships prior to the Battle of Rhode Island and the dispatching of several regiments to Newport, Rhode Island. Washington asked General Charles Scott to handle Brewster and find additional agents assisted by Talmadge. Scott delegated most of the work to Talmadge and Washington asked him to recruit reliable intelligence agents in New York City. As contact for Brewster, Talmadge recommended a mutual childhood friend. Abraham Woodhull of Setatucket on Long Island. A few months earlier, Woodhull has been, had been arrested for illegal trading, of which he had been guilty and was being held in a Connecticut prison. Talmadge arranged his release through Governor Jonathan Trumbull and obtained approval by Washington and Scott to recruit him as an intelligence agent. Washington suggested the alias Samuel Culper after Culper County, Virginia, where he had worked as a surveyor in his youth. Talmadge and Scott had different approaches. Scott preferred single-mission agents who returned to base after each completion. Talmadge favored embedding agents and establishing a secure line of communication. Since Scott lost three out of five agents sent into New York City in early September, Washington decided that Talmadge's method should be used. He opened discussions on setting up an embedded network with Woodhull and Brewster. Scott resigned on October 29th, and Talmadge replaced him as intelligence chief. Woodhull traveled to New York City every few weeks to gather intelligence. His married sister, Mary Underhill, lived there and gave him a valid reason to visit. He was questioned at a British checkpoint on October 31st, 1778, which increased his anxiety about the dangerous mission, but he returned to Tuckett with valuable information about the British supply fleet. fleet excuse me. He provided a precise report on November 23rd with the identity of British units and the number of troops and dispositions in New York City, which provided his worth as a spy. Woodhull soon recruited his brother-in-law, Amos Underhill, to gather intelligence. The latter ran a boarding house in the city with his wife, Mary, but Underhill's reports were often too vague to be of much value. At first, Woodhull had to return to Setucket to pass messages to Caleb Brewster, which Brewster would take to Talmadge, or receive messages from Talmadge via Brewster. Talmadge set up couriers in December who would take messages along the 55 miles between New York and Setucket, initially Jonas Hawkins and mainly Austin Rowe beginning in early summer. The courier's task was to get the letters to Brewster, who would pick up messages at one of six secluded coves near the city, and take them across Long Island Sound, with his rotating whaleboat crews to Talmadge at Fairfield, Connecticut. Talmadge would then take them to Washington's headquarters. The time-consuming task was replaced in January 1779 by the assignment of express riders to take the messages from Talmadge to Washington. Local tradition claims that Anna Strong, a resident of Setucket and a friend and neighbor of Abraham Woodhull, helped pass along messages from the spy ring by posting prearranged signals to indicate when one of the spies was ready to submit intelligence. If she hung a black petticoat on her clothesline, it meant that Brewster had arrived in town in his whaleboat. Also, she would hang a number of white handkerchiefs to indicate which of the six hiding places he was in. Woodhull used her signals to meet Brewster or to drop messages at one of the meeting places. The historian Richard Welch writes that the tradition of the clothesline signal is unverifiable, but it is known that the British suspected a woman who fit Anna's profile of patriot activities. 
Brewster occasionally would add his own report to the Culper messages. In a January 1779 report received by Washington in early February, Brewster sent some information about naval matters in a boat building in New York City and warned that loyalists were outfitting privateers for operations on Long Island Sound. That was delivered with a message from Woodhull that precisely described the British regiments and commanders at the northern tip of Manhattan, totaling about 8,500 men. Woodhull also reported on British boat building, confirming Brewster's report. Talmadge and Washington thought that the boats might be planned for transport for an attack against Connecticut by Major General William Tryon, who had conducted a raid during the winter. Woodhull became increasingly anxious about being discovered and did little in May and June 1779. John Wolsey was a Long Island privateer who was captured by the British. To secure parole, he told British officers on June 5th that Woodhull was up to something dubious. Colonel John Graves Simcoe, the commander of the Queen's Rangers, came to Sedaucket to look for Woodhull, but he was away in New York City. Simcoe's men attacked and beat Woodhull's father, Judge Richard Woodhull. Abraham Woodhull escaped arrest because Loyalist militia officer Benjamin Floyd vouched for him. Floyd was married to a member of the Woodhull family. Woodhull reported that he could not continue to operate in New York City after the visit from Simcoe because of suspicion, but Woodhull had a new agent lined up and would go to New York to finalize arrangements with him. In late June, Washington sent a letter to Talmadge in which he identified George Higday as a possible operative to, relit, to relieve Woodhull in New York City. The British had intercepted a June 13th letter from Washington that referred to C. and Talmadge. On July 2nd, British cavalry under the command of Colonel Bannister Tarleton attacked Talmadge's camp and captured his horse and some papers, including the letter mentioning Higday. They were trying to capture Talmadge himself because they knew he was the head of Washington's intelligence operation. The second letter confirmed that the agent C. Blank was operating in New York City, and Talmadge was the chief intelligence officer for Washington. Higday escaped execution, but was of no use as a spy to Washington or to Clinton, who tried to recruit him as a double agent. In June 1779, Woodhull engaged Robert Townsend to gather intelligence in New York City by using the alias Samuel Culper Jr. Townsend was involved in business there, and his presence would arouse less suspicion than Woodhull's visits. He had access to British officers through several channels, including his own tailoring business. He also wrote a society column in a Loyalist newspaper and owned an interest in a coffee house with the newspaper's owner, James Rivington, who was also a secret member of the Culper Ring. Once Townsend began his intelligence activities in New York City, Woodhull operated almost exclusively from Sedatucket, apologize for butchering the name, and revised the communications network. Townsend would pass intelligence to a courier, initially Hawkins, later Hawkins and Rowe, and exclusively Rowe after September 1779. He would take it to the city and pass it to Woodhull, usually by a dead drop in a box hidden in a field that Rowe rented from Woodhull. Woodhull would evaluate and comment on it, pass it to Brewster, who would occasionally add an intelligence note of his own, take it across Long Island Sound, and pass it to Talmadge. Talmadge would usually add a cover letter with comments and send and receive messages by a relay of dragoons acting as, a, as couriers. Hawkins was bold at first, but later became increasingly anxious about British patrols. His role was reduced between April and July. Talmadge assigned a code number in his code directory to Rowe, but not to Hawkins. 
Woodhull wrote in a coded message on August 15th that Hawkins had to destroy a letter from Culper Jr. or be captured. He also wrote that Hawkins insisted his next meeting with Townsend be in an out-of-the-way location. Townsend did not like taking additional risk and was beginning to doubt Hawkins' reliability and regret the destroyed messages. Hawkins finally stopped his courier services for the spy ring in September 1779 as Townsend refused to deal with him any longer. Woodhull acted as the courier on September 11th so that he could explain to Townsend the loss of the earlier letters, and Rowe became the sole permanent courier for the ring. Secrecy was so strict that Washington did not know the identity of all the operatives. Townsend, who was recruited by Woodhull, was especially insistent that his identity not be revealed, although Austin Rowe and Jones Hawkins needed to know. Among the techniques that the Culper Ring used to relay information were coded messages published in newspapers and invisible ink called a sympathetic stain to write between the lines of what appeared to be typical letters. In the first months of the Ring's operations, they were forced to rely on crude tactics to conceal their information before a complex web of codes and invisible ink were accessible, so they relied on a small number of codes for memory. Woodhull used the codes. 10 New York 30 and 40 post writers and 20 Setucket in his first letter of correspondence. Talmadge realized, realized the significance of creating a codebook to increase their vocabulary. By July 1779, he had complete, completed pocket dictionaries with lists of verbs, nouns, people, and places with their corresponding code numbers. The dictionaries were given to Washington, Woodhull, Townsend, and Talmadge himself to ensure that they did not get into enemy hands. With the use of the codes, the letters were complex and required much effort to write and comprehend. The code book helped Washington make sure that the Culper Ring spies had more support and operated in greater secrecy than previous Continental spies. Perhaps with Nathan Hale in mind, Talmadge, Woodhull, and Townsend were given code names and code numbers along with Washington, Brewster, Rowe, and Rivington. Washington's code number was 711. Is it a conspiracy or not? Leave me some comments and messages at CTC Podcast one on Twitter, and let's discuss the topic. If there's a topic you want to hear about, let me know, and I'll prepare a detailed episode about it. Without holding you for longer, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform, and share us with your friends and fellow podcast fans. And we'll see you next time. You have been watching Connect the Conspiracy with your host, Larry Luis. Follow us on Twitter at CTC Podcast One and on Facebook.com slash Connect the Conspiracy. You can also find us on Instagram at Connect the Conspiracy. If you'd like, you can support the show by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash CTC Podcast. Thank you for joining us. At One Day University. We feature hundreds of top-rated professors from Stanford, Harvard, Michigan, Texas, UCLA, and other schools across the world to explore history, music, politics, art, science, and much more. Every Wednesday, our weekly scholar newsletter includes five fascinating short video clips of our most notable professors discussing a brand new topic, plus special reports and topical debates as well. Sign up for free at OneDayU.com. That's O-N-E-D-A-Y-U.com.